Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossifer with your host, Paul Frederick. Saturnian sessions on Damon Ossophy, where we delve into the groovy dark vibes that arise for those who dare to stay up too late on a Saturday night. My guest tonight is William Ryan Scroggins, tattoo artist, musician, student of the occult, initiate of the Golden Dawn, Freemason, and general student of the universe, is here to talk with us tonight about his uh experiences and magic and efforts and the kind of world that he lives in and ryan welcome to the show hey thanks for having me good to see you again you bet man so let's uh let's start out let's do a toast what are you drinking tonight lafroig and that's what is that scotch scotch yeah all right cool i'm drinking some uh telemore dew irish whiskey here so cheers All right. So for the people that uh for those who don't know, I met Ryan. When did when did I meet you? Was that last year? It was last year during COVID, right? <clears throat> was it before or after lockdown? It was it was during lockdown. I'm pretty sure it was like during lockdown because I, like probably a lot of people during lockdown decided hey with all this extra time it's a good time to like go get like some tattoos that i'd been like putting off like wanting to get for like years and years and had all this extra time and um in the neighborhood you know i live in the heights and i was driving by this uh the flying squid tattoo shop i'd drive by it like uh you know a couple times a week you know going to heb and and I would like start wondering, hmm, I wonder maybe I can find a tattoo artist there. And so I started went and I looked online and I found uh, the different artists on Instagram. And I was following like several of the artists out of uh, the Flying Squid. And and your work kept coming up in my stream with this like Egyptian stuff and this Aleister Crowley stuff and this occult stuff. And I'm like this is the guy that I want to work with. So that's how, that's how it all happened to me. So I started getting a hold of you then. And, uh, and then, uh, we ended up, uh, doing some, I ended up getting some tattoos from you. I got, uh, I got that and that and, uh, Beals above up here. So I, I enjoyed all that very much. And so that's, uh, that's where we like, like met. And so, um, Gosh, I'm just like talking about myself now. (laughs) (laughs) We've gotten a bunch of cool stuff from you. I'll say that. Yeah, definitely. No, I loved it. I love, I love like the work you do. So, um, so before I just like, uh, eat up all of this time, just talking about myself, um, (laughs) I start every interview asking people how they found their initiatory path. So I'm going to ask you that. How did you find the initiatory spiritual path that you are currently on now? Um, Well, I'll give you the shortest version I can. I uh, actually grew up um, in a Baptist school, very religious, well, not very religious, but, you know, Southern Baptist religious family. 
uh, I went to Baptist school until I was about 14, 13, 14. And then we moved across the state and I went to public school. So that was kind of like a culture shock for me. And, uh, you know, and where, where was, where was this at? Where did you go? Where I grew where up was... in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, and then, um, we moved to, uh, Texas city specifically. Uh, I finished high school. Well, didn't finish high school, but went to high school there, uh, and then ended up in Houston. Um, but, um, when I got into my teens, you know, I was in punk rock bands and then, uh, once I got, I, I started tattooing when I was 17, so I kind of quit playing music for a little while because I wanted to, you know, get good at my career. And then once I got kind of uh, established, uh, I was like, okay, I have time to play music again. So I didn't want to play punk rock and I didn't want to sing or play guitar. So I was like, I wanted to do something different. Uh, I was like, well, my second favorite uh, music would be like reggae and ska. So I, uh, started thinking about it and I was like, you know, what, 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 what would I like to do? And I was like, well, my second favorite instrument out of all of that would be the organ. So I started playing organ and uh, getting into reggae a lot more uh, than I had before. And I started realizing, you know, that uh, the Rastas were definitely very spiritual, very Old Testament. So I thought that was kind of cool because it was like bringing me back to my roots in a strange way. Um, and then years and years later, um, I started having anxiety attacks. Um, my psychotherapist actually taught me the fourfold breath, which I didn't even, he didn't call it that, but that's what he taught me at the time. And I didn't even realize it until years later that he was essentially the first of getting in a car accident flying through the air and sliding across the pavement and having my appendix removed a couple days later. So I think that was the final uh, push for me to actually step out and join um, Western Mystery Schools, or or at least it spurred me into uh, getting serious about researching them. So so I have to stop. So you, you cut out there for a second, and then all of a sudden there was like a car crash. So you were, you were in a car crash? You were in a wreck yourself? Okay. <sighs> And that yeah. was kind of a pinnacle. That was kind of a pinnacle moment where you like kind of changed after that, and and, and what say you got more serious about certain things. Yeah, and that's when I started, uh, you know, researching the different Western mystery schools because I had heard, you know, uh, if you live in the West, it's better to go with the Western tradition. If you live in the East, it's better to go with the East. They both work, but I've always heard, you know, if you live in the West, you might want to consider a Western tradition over a Eastern tradition. So I started studying, um, you know, all of the different Western mystery schools that exist. Uh, my grand, you know, I like a lot of people in the U.S. My grandfather, my my dad, um, my great uncle, they were all Masons. So I looked into that for a while, and then I started. But I was like, you know, I want something more um, ceremonial, and then I found you know, the Golden Dawn, and then I researched the Golden Dawn, and then I found out there were all these different, uh, not necessarily lineages, but schools of the Golden Dawn. And so I eventually worked my way through all of that and joined a handful of schools. And some of them I'm 
not active in some of them i'm not very active in and some of them i'm very active in still so but that's kind of you know uh what led up to all of it i guess i think i've always been like this since i was a little kid but i think different events kind of triggered it further and further you know what i mean so what do you think it was what was it about the car wreck that 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 kind of changed things was it it gave you a sense of like you know the time is short yeah i think everybody that's real serious about the occult has had uh, either a personal near-death experience or someone near to them has died and it you know uh for me i was like well if i'm gonna die i'm gonna die right <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean mm -hmm. uh so I think a lot of people that are seriously involved in the occult have had, you know, uh, personal realizations uh, of death, you know, because uh, that's essentially what Western mystery schools teach us to do. They teach us to die properly, <laughs> you know. No, that's a great way. That's a great way of looking at it. I mean, they all they all have like they all deal with that like question in 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 some way or another. And um, uh, um, there, th there's this idea. I think it comes from. I think it's Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff said that the 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 highest goal everyone could have is to um, is to be completely aware of their own death. Like if everyone was just aware of their the 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 finality and the absoluteness of their own impending death, then everyone would realize, oh well, I absolutely must take advantage of this day, this hour, right now to try and be a more conscious being to try and be a more uh, present being to try and be more um, be more real, you know, and, and to do the things that that, you know, that that I'm not going to have time for, you know, later on. Yeah. And I think the more you're taught through mystery schools about death, the more comfortable you become with it. You're not afraid of it. I mean, the you know, the ancient Egyptians used to celebrate it. Um, and you realize that it's not what we're taught to believe that it is. You know, it's just a transformation. It's not an end. You know, it's a beginning. Yeah, you kind of you 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 tapped into what my next question was going to be: is why is the why is it that um, the the um, popular schools or you know you you in your case you mentioned Baptist you know Baptists you know Southern Baptists they talk about death too. Why is that? Why is that? Why was that not enough? And why did you seek? Why did you seek elsewhere? Mm, well, stop going to church. Um, around the time that we moved, you know, when we went to church when I was younger, we were it was a family thing, like our relatives and friends, you know, all went to this one church. And when we moved, we kind of lost that. Um, family unit aspect to it, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, we were going to church, uh, a new church in Texas City for a bit, but it's like we didn't know very many people. Uh, it was a different vibe. Uh, I got a very bad vibe from the preacher at one point. At one point, one of my friends uh, committed suicide. And we were going to church like a little bit, and I found out that this particular preacher was going to teach at his or uh, preach at his funeral. And uh, my mom told me, you know, he's going to come over and talk to you. And this guy goes over and basically says, like, well, you know, I'm going to preach at your friend's. I'm going to give the sermon at your friend's uh, funeral. And I just want you to know that I'm going to try to do a good job and yada, yada, yada. We end up going to the 
funeral and about five minutes into the sermon he starts talking about how you need to tip the offering plate you know and uh-huh. I'm like, wow dude okay you know yeah so that definitely put a bad taste in my mouth and you know we just kind of stopped going at, at that point but i've always known since i was a kid like you don't need churches inside of you you know yeah um one thing i i i had happened to me that i like to share with a lot of people is when i was in a grade <clears throat> you remember like when we were young and they would have the uh, felt boards where they would stick like characters and figures on them to tell you a story right in oh, school. Oh yeah. Yep. So uh in Christian school, you know, English and science and math and all that, but you also had Bible class. And in Bible class they were uh teaching the story on the felt board and they were talking about uh missionaries. And I thought it was really cool because uh I had a friend who uh his parents were missionaries to Brazil and they would go and stay there for, you know, a long time, a long part of, of every year they would be in Brazil. And I was like really into National Geographic when I was a kid, you know, watching National Geographic specials. And I thought it was like really cool uh, that they got to go do that. And so long story short, uh, the teacher was teaching us about uh, missionaries. And she said at the end of her whole spiel, she was like, you know, and this is why um, we have missionaries because people don't learn uh, our our God and our religion that they're going to go to hell. And, you know, being a little kid, I was like, mm-hmm. no, they're not, you know, and she was like, what do you mean? And I'm like, hold on, you're trying to tell me that an isolated tribe of people in Africa that have never heard of our specific religion and God is going to go to hell. And she was mm-hmm. like, yes. And I was like, hold on, monks on a mountain in Tibet are going to go to hell because they don't practice our form of religion. And she was like, yes. And I was like, you're wrong. You know, and she immediately sent me to the principal's office. Um, my parents were called. Uh, they put me in another room. To this day, I have no idea what was said, um, but I went home that day and no one ever said anything to me about it again. And it freaked me out as a small kid because I was like, okay, these adults that are supposed to be teaching me have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a little kid, that was a little freaky because I was like, wow, do I know more than some of these adults? And I realized like, yeah, I do, (laughs) you know, Uh, but I'm thankful for that that moment because I think it taught me a lot. uh, And I think that that's one of those, uh, you know. Spurring points of my spiritual awakening or, or what have you, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, and even being that young, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, 100%. So um, when you when you tell that story, I think of like um, my my experience was when um, so my my father was he was a kind of an existentialist and an intellectual and a philosopher and stuff like that. But his family that he came from it's all in, in Missouri, the hills in Missouri, you know, Ozark Mountain country. Um, we're, we're pretty Baptist. And and so he died when I was young. I was like like uh, nine years old when he died. And and the funeral was at, at, at this little old church out in the out in the sticks, you know, out out, out in the country in, in Missouri, so around near uh, Dunaweg, Missouri. And um, the 
the preacher, like who was like, you know, officiating over it, he said, he said, it's too late, too late for Bill McAtee. But for the rest of you, it's not too late. Come on up to the altar and be sick. Because that form of like religion is no, you got to come up to the altar. You got to come come up there and you got to shake and roll and stuff like that to like to like prove yourself. And it's like he used my then I was like young enough to know. So he's he's first of all, he's saying my dad's in hell. Right. And he's using that to scare other people. He's using it as an opportunity to scare other people into into you know flock they're all all already flock members anyhow right they're all like people from like the area you know and so they're all like he's he's using it as this opportunity to reinforce his like uh his his fear dogma and but you know like you i real and there's a couple of other experiences you know when i was young and i asked like a preacher you know i asked a priest you know what he really thought about you know the afterlife and stuff and i realized they they don't really know they don't really know what's going on and they're just like they because if you ask too many questions then they get mad at you and start punishing you for asking questions right yeah. and so like like so um i guess like like you i look back to that that's the er earliest experiment or experience that set me on this on this path towards towards finding finding another way you know yeah yeah and and you know i have no problem with christianity but then again i understand its origins and its true purposes and it you know it's been corrupted like everything else and there's good people in certain organizations and there's bad people in certain organizations but you can't you know you can't lump them all up into one box right uh, and i think that's these days is people are doing that with all types of things and it's like you can't you can't do that you know yeah, it's part of the human problem. It's <clears throat> yeah. like 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 Christianity. It's not because of like, you know, how I feel about Christianity and everything that I just described. It's not because of like what Jesus said necessarily. <laughs> yeah, it's because yeah. of like what people have done with it, yeah. right? You know? It's because uh, you know, people uh people definitely like uh power positions, you know. Right. It's like that not just in the church, but in the you know how it is, it's like that in the occult, you know, it's like yeah. that in work in the workplace it's like that you know like you say it's part of the the human problem right it's like they try to turn it into a uh they uh, they they try and turn it into an organization you know um and it's like you know it was like it when when i read the gospels everything that i'm taking out of it is that this guy was really against organizations and he thought yeah. that the state the state I mean, if there's anything you can take out of like the Gospels, it is that the state crushes the soul of man. Like oh, even yeah. even even though they don't want to, like Conscious Pilate is like, well, I see no problem with this man. He doesn't even want to like fuck with this guy, but he has to because that's what the that's what the the system does. That's what the state does. No choice. Sorry, guy, we're gonna have to nail you to a cross like everyone else up there. You know. Well, it's like I was saying earlier. Church is inside of you. It says it right there. The kingdom of heaven is within you. you know? Yeah. No, he says it over and over again. Like, how? I don't know. It's like, you know, 20, 20, 30 times throughout the Gospels. He says, like, the kingdom of heaven is is within you. And it's like, that's the clearest message if you just read it. Right. Yeah. If you just read the source itself, that's clearly the main message. Right. Yeah. 
But then that's not what you experience out in the outside world. You experience people like, you know, coming up. You, you need to feel really bad because Jesus died for your sins. You know, you need to like feel bad about that and, and do something. Yeah. Like and then you've got the Joel Olsteins of the world out there, too, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, he's just he's just trying to turn it into. And, and we have to say we're both like we're both like. Uh, Houston residents here, so we live in the city that has the largest televangelist ministry on earth. It used to be a, um, it used to be a great concert hall and, and a sporting events arena, but now it's like a huge televangelist like ministry. And he's like basically like just transforming Christianity into a, I don't know what would you call it? It's like kind of a self help like twelve step kind of, it's like a thing, you know. <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, it's 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 wild. That's for sure. I like meeting people that go to that church, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw Depeche Mode play in your church. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Don Henley. I saw Don Henley, like, play in that, in that church. I saw him do uh, Hotel Don California. <laughs> I don't remember. I think I saw Nirvana and Depeche Mode are the only two bands I can think of off the top of my head that I saw there. But, yeah, it was. I think it's crazy that that place is a church now. Yeah, that's bizarre. <laughs> it's massive. You know, yeah, yeah. It's like he's turned it into like a a reality game show almost. It's just it's wild. Yeah. So I got to ask you now about uh, tattooing. Let's drill down on the tattooing. How did you actually start? How did you start tattooing? How did you get to the point where you like took one of those guns and you're like, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna put this permanent mark on someone else's skin. Um, I got lucky, uh, high school, um, I had a friend, uh, I'll sh give him a shout out. His name was Bobby Alexander. And he, uh, he was one of those guys, you know, that bought a tattoo machine, like a tattoo kit and was tattooing people out of his bedroom in high school. He was a couple years older than me. And, uh, you know, we'd go over to his house and drink and smoke and, watch each other get tattooed. Luckily, I never got anything uh, out of the bedroom back in those days. I'm kind of <laughs> thankful for that. Uh, but long story short, he got, uh, he ended up getting a job in Galveston. He got an apprenticeship at a shop in Galveston. And this was around the time me and a few of my other friends had dropped out of school. So we would go uh, just hang out at the shop. And I got to know everybody at the shop and he ended up quitting uh, and moving to a shop in Clear Lake, he actually called me and he was like, hey, man, uh, you're a better artist than me. You should take some of your art from, uh, high school over there and show the lady that runs the shop. Uh, her name is Susie McCamey. Uh, he was the name of the shop was Body Language Tattoos, and it's still there to this day in Galveston. It's changed locations a few times since I was there, but it's there. Uh, and Susie is the lady who ended up teaching me how to tattoo. She's still alive, and she's her runs. Um, but yeah, so I took it over there and showed her my stuff, and she ended up giving me an apprenticeship. I was only seventeen years old at the time, so I got like super lucky. I got in at an early age, um, and I worked there for about a year and a half, and then I ended up. I only apprenticed for about nine months, uh, and I worked there with including my apprenticeship and everything i worked there for about a year and a half 
then I ended up moving to Houston uh, because that's where all my friends were, and I knew I was going to move up there anyway. Uh, worked at a shop called Lucky Star for a little while. I ended up at a shop called uh, Hot Stuff Deluxe with uh, Carson Vester and Eric Doyle. They were both running it at the same time. Carson's a pretty big name in tattooing. That's another guy that uh, I'll give credit to. He definitely taught me more than probably anybody else has taught me about the industry after I had initially been taught. Uh, and where were where were those shops at in in Houston? Can you get is that like down Star, in the Lucky Star was in Montrose. Uh, okay. Hot Stuff Deluxe was Hot Stuff Deluxe. I worked there longer than any other shop. I worked there for eleven years. It was on the southwest side. And I probably would still be working there if the if the like originating team hadn't kind of went off and gone and done different things. Uh, and then I moved to a shop. You remind me of when when I like first moved to um, Houston was 1998, and and I remember like going up and down with Montrose, like all the tattoo all the tattoo places that were going on. I mean, tattooing was such a big thing then. And I'd gotten all my tattoos up to that point. I got all my tattoos like in the early, early 90s and stuff in um, in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I, I had lived before. And and tattooing was so big in, in Houston. It was such a thing. And and I was like, I got to get I got to get me some new tattoos. But I just, you know, 20 years went by. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years went by and when I like got a hold of you is like the, the the time I came to to do it but I, I like how you're mentioning like all those time that that time period of the 90s I think that was like a real special time in Houston that's like that's like not around anymore that that I miss you know yeah it's kind of a shame because I know when I went so like when I when I was still with my original teacher she she introduced me to all like the big wigs across Texas. You know, she was like, if you're going to go to Houston, Richard Stell is the man. He's the king. If you're going to go to Austin, Chris Trevino is the king of Austin. If you're going to go to San Antonio, it's Weldon Lewis and Sean Dagon. And uh, she took me and introduced me to a lot of these people. And uh, and then when I started working with Carson and Eric, it's like they were connected to Chris and Sean. Uh, and it's like, and, and even Richard. And it's like, and that doesn't, you know, everybody knew everybody back then, and now it's not like that at all. There is no uh, really strong community in Texas, in my opinion, and it's very much like, uh, you know, uh, I hate to keep using the word, but like, you know, rat race. You know, the uh -huh. younger, the younger people that have come in have no desire to uh reach out and make a relationship with the older guys which is what we made it a point to do because we wanted to learn from them you know but now it's like everybody thinks oh i can just google it or youtube it and not have to make a personal relationship and i think right. that's the big thing that's changed and it and through that changing it's kind of changed the community but you know it's like that with all of the arts right. it's like music it's like that with the occult uh, and you know there are there there are a few younger people here and there that that make it a point to do that, but you know I think it's that they're definitely a minority, you know. No, I agree with that. So I'm just thinking in terms of music, you know, I I, I tried to do a, a a touring band thing in the '90s with my band Morphine Angel, and I remember that like everything that I learned about how to do music, like at that level, like how to book shows how to like put out an album, you know, how to record an album, you know, 
all of that stuff I learned by going and meeting people. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like uh, there was like a, a, a culture of mentorship for for our generation, you know. Yeah, I read some books. I checked out some books and I read some books about, you know, how to, you know, do these things or and you read magazines and stuff, but it's really when you meet other people and connect with them that you have that that knowledge exchange. And well, I feel and that then, you know, back then booking a tour, you had to call people. Yeah. And you had to make relationships with those booking agents and people that worked in actual clubs that you were going to go visit. It's not like that now, you know. Right. No, you had to cold call people. And you knew that that person you're calling, they're maybe only by that phone like two hours a day. They're yep. not going to return calls and they don't give a fuck about you and your yeah. band that they've never heard of before. Yeah. Until and so you that's what you're up against, you know? Yeah, until you make a relationship with them. And that's what I always thought was important. Yeah. Like when, when my band, uh, I'm sure we'll end up talking about this later, but so my band formed from an old band that broke up. And the reason that we kept my band was supposed to just be a studio project. But the reason that my band became an actual thing was because we had a West Coast tour booked with the, the previous band that I was in. And our singer at the time broke the band up. And I was like, well, we're not going to cancel this tour. You know, I've been calling these people on the phone. Uh -huh. I'm not going to destroy all these relationships that I've created all the way across the West Coast. And back to Texas, just because this guy wants to break the band up, like we're going to take my band, you yeah. know what I mean, and fulfill those dates and obligations with my band. Yeah. And that's what we ended up doing. And, and it was good because my band ended up being a, a, a thing after that. But that's not that wasn't the plan. Uh, the only reason we did that was simply to fulfill those obligations. So we did not destroy those relationships that we had created over right. the years. You know, it takes years to do that. Well, it took years. And nowadays it's just you know it's all on the internet yeah very impersonal yeah no it is it's like uh i i, I mean i'm i'm kind of beyond that that stage in my life where i'm like trying to book a tour anymore there's yeah. somewhere in the early like like you know the 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 2000s you know i was doing asmodeus x and 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 we went and did like some show like mini tours right we went out to the west coast and stuff like that and did some shows but we never did like I did back in the 90s, where you try and book and stay on the road. Let's try and stay on the road for like a month, you know, and, and just do as much as we can. And and when you book a show, that's it. That's your 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 honor and your reputation is all on that. And you, the show must go on. You have to show up and you have to do the show. And it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. It's like in someone's backyard or someone's basement or it's some bullshit or they're not going to pay you. No, that doesn't matter that you're not going to get paid for it. We went out and like did it to like say, hey, no, we're going to do this. Right. We're we're establishing we're constating our existence of like we're going to do this, even though, you know, the music industry, no one like gives a fuck. We're going to like fucking do this, you know, and so you carry through with it. So. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that that's kind of how we ended up too. It's like once <clears throat> time went by, we realized we just couldn't keep doing it the way that we were trying to do it. We got to the point, uh, you know, now I don't even have a band. Now I just play solo. But towards the end of my band, we got to the point to where we we realized our best points in the U.S. were tri-state area up in the east coast and then southern california so we got to the point to where we had 
good relationships with local bands from both of those areas. We would just fly into those areas and backline equipment with with uh, friends bands and tour around for a week yeah. or two just in those specific areas. Because it's like, you know, when we were touring, we would do great when we got to those areas, but getting to those areas, all the shows in between, mm -hmm. it just became too rough to where the, you know, we couldn't even get gas money to go to the next town. So yeah, <laughs> it became better to uh, fly to those areas and concentrate in those areas. And, you know, you can do it in like the tri-state area. You can play in New York for a couple of days, New Jersey for a couple of days, Philadelphia, you know, same thing with Southern California. You can play Southern California for a straight 10 days and, and every show will potentially be good you know if you spread the word properly and that's that's how we did it nowadays it's like i just play if my friends are touring from out of town and they want me to play some gigs in texas with them when they roll through uh just for fun you know yeah no that's uh i i i totally i totally relate to that that's uh, that that that's where i'm at and and with i mean Look, everything that happened in the last year, like, has has like fucked all of that. I feel like we're talking about what we used to do before COVID came in and fucked everything. It's like I don't know what people do now, you know. During the COVID, um, I did. Well, actually, we ended up as as Modius X ended up doing more gigs during COVID than we had in the previous like you know five six years because of like online opportunities opened up for it, right? So you're doing like a on we did an online gig. And then we did we did one uh, that was a streaming thing, but someone had a stage set up like out in the country, and they and they and they streamed it. But I don't know what people do would would do going forward to like make it. I don't know what the kids are doing nowadays. I know? think it just depends on where you're at, you know, like where what part of the United States you're actually in. And then even then, it it varies greatly. Like uh, you know, in Houston, you can go to a show. There's no restrictions, no masks, no no vax passports, no positive COVID, negative COVID tests, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, there's none of that. Uh, no mask, you know. But you drive down two and a half hours to Austin, it's a complete different story. You drive five hours into New Orleans, and it's a very different story. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So it's just like, and that's what I mean. It's not those those places aren't that far apart from each other. So. It's really weird, you know, and I know my friends up in the extreme northwest and the extreme northeast. It's a very different story in those places as well right now. So I don't know. You know? Yeah. No, it's just bizarre. No one can say anything about <laughs> what's going on, like geographically. I mean, that used to be the thing, though, like like, you know, in the 90s and stuff like touring and, and, and doing music and in the 2000s. It's like, you know, it was all about. You roll into town, you meet the people, you know, you establish connections, and then you're connected with people in this town, right? Yeah. And and yeah. and that's like something that like goes on. And if the the connections are good, then maybe you'll come back, you know. I mean, that's part of the reason I'm even in Texas right now, is because in the '90s, my goth band. Well, we had lots of like good, you know, good response in Texas. We had lots of like good contacts in Texas, you know. Um, so you know um the tone zone bozo bozo porno circus oh yeah all, yeah 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 all those guys i mean they they and, and and dana dark those were all the people that uh we met like coming through texas and and everyone was just like 
you know, so cool and, 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 you know, very like, you know, like, you know, you know, hooking you up and stuff like that. And so when we decided, you know, we wanted to like move down south because we'd been living in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, of all places, which is now everyone knows about it. I used to tell this whole story about, yeah, well, we were in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and no one gave a fuck. What is that? You know, Kenosha, Wisconsin, never heard of it. That's Nowheresville. Oh, now it's suddenly it's like a big deal. <laughs> That's the thing with Texas, man, that I'm proud of is uh, a lot of my musician friends from out of state that I've made relationships with and I still talk to to this day. They are always very much uh, willing to profess the fact that everyone they've met in Texas is very hospitable, uh, more so than anywhere else that they've been. Oh, yeah. When bands would come here, we were all about like calling them up and being like, hey, come straight to the house. We're going to barbecue. We got a bunch of beer for everybody. You can crash at our house. You know, every yeah. every time anybody from our genre, especially that was playing with us, it's like you're getting hooked up. You're having a straight up. We're going to have a straight up party. You know what I mean? And uh, I think uh, people appreciate that years down the road. Uh, but it's just, you know, that's not why we were doing it. It's just that's just how we roll down here in Texas. You know? Yeah. No, it is. It a hundred percent is, man. And it's like it was so easy for me. Like, you know, I, I we started out this conversation. I was talking about like, you know, I grew up in Missouri when I was like a child, right? So I kind of had like a southern like beginnings like right there. But then I'd gone and lived in uh, Nebraska and Wisconsin and stuff, Midwest and in the north. And it's like the more I started when I started touring with a band, I started reconnecting with like other people like in in different parts of the country. And everything, just just the South and 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 specifically Texas, was always drawing me closer and closer, like back back in in that direction. That's where the people were were nicest, you know. Yeah. That's where the people were coolest. That's where the best opportunities were. That's where the weather was better, you know. Um, you know, that's where the economy was better. That's the other thing too, is the economy was like better in Texas than it was in in wisconsin in the 90s you know so it's like really easy to make the case oh yeah you should just like move down here okay no problem let's let's like do it it's it's definitely the place to be and it, it breaks my heart when i hear people like from the from the coasts and 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 from the uh the the bourgeoisie you know um you know talking talking smack about like texas right it's like you do not know what it's like in texas you have no idea you're like have a false image presented to you of like other people but it's like it's probably like the best place it's the most open people are open and understanding and non-judgmental and like fr like you said man they're like no we're gonna have a barbecue come on out you know yeah yeah That's simple yeah um I gotta plug my band before so that people know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So my, band about the is, band. Uh, my band is Ryan Scroggins and the Trenchtown Texans. Uh, we have three full-length albums out on all streaming platforms, and I released two solo albums this year. Uh, so check them out. They're on all streaming platforms: Spotify, iTunes, even YouTube. Uh, and then the the Latin ska band that I was talking about earlier, I was in, is pretty pretty big Texas band called Los Carnales, uh, and I played organ for those guys for about five or six years, uh, and that was a great experience. I got to tour Mexico several times, and those were my first Mexico experiences, going straight into Mexico City and Monterrey, so that was great. Um, 
but yeah, that's where all my touring days started were in Scarnales. We toured Mexico several times, both coasts several times through the connections, like we were saying that I made from uh, booking shows in Scarnales. I carried it into Trenchtown, Texans. Okay. Uh, toured both coasts and Trenchtown, Texans for several years. We never got to tour Mexico. Uh, I got an invitation to go back to Monterey right before COVID, and you know it didn't didn't happen. Uh, yeah. But I, I'd like to get back down to Mexico and play some shows out there. I think people would dig what I'm doing right now. So who knows? Maybe, maybe one day. I'm no, just not active with music as I used to be. You know, so much yeah. more. You know how it is. So many more other things to do. <laughs> no, there is, man. But like, music's always there. So I always think of. Uh... When I think of your music, I think of uh, people keep watching that old devil box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one's funny to me because that song I wrote about the swine flu. Okay. Uh, but now when you go back and listen to it, it's like so relevant for, for all of this COVID shit. You know? Yeah. It's about, for those people out there that haven't heard it, it's just about propaganda on the media and the tv the devil box the tv yeah. uh you know and it, and it's funny if you listen to it now because it's totally relatable to to covid and all of that stuff i've even made a uh, modified version for when i play now and i changed some of the words up to fit the times <laughs> sweet no sorry I, I i love that because i think about that like when i'm sitting around watching tv and we're watching information oh they're giving us new information about covid i think of that that song, that song of yours, Old Devil Box, like, comes up, and I remember, oh, man, it's all, like, fucking nonsense. Yeah. It's all just lies anyhow. There's nothing on here that could possibly even be true, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, didn't they release those, uh, what was it, CIA documents? I don't know, this year, last year? I'm horrible with time, but, I mean, they were straight up admitting, like, when the TV was invented, that was their plan. Like we can yeah. manipulate everybody with this thing, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like yeah. Well, in, in 1984, like George Orwell talks about, like the main, the 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 big technological innovation, most recent technological innovation that affected culture was the two-way television, which is like the television, and he said that so he realized, oh, it's this thing that's in your house, right? And it's telling you stuff, but. It's two ways. It's like it's giving you information, and at the same time, it's gathering information about you. It's seeing into your like your room, or basically. Oh, like the cell phone. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, or like a Google, uh, what uh, Siri or whatever, or whatever those things that people have that just this box that sits and listens all oh, the yeah. time, and you talk to it and it wakes up. But I mean, it's like listening to everything that's going on and and following all of your data. Flies around your house. What is this? So they made a new one. I don't know if it got released or not. I think that it got uh, pushed back. But they made a new like Siri thing, and it it looks like a little square kind of uh, box thing. Uh huh. And when you talk to it, it's like white and has a black ring on the top, and, and the black ring is actually like a, a drone propeller, and okay. it lifts up out of the box, and there's like a little TV remote looking thing hanging from this like propeller. And it flies around your house and shit. Oh and my god! Yeah, and I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like now the thing has legs essentially and can just walk. Or like you know that thing's flying around your house when you're not there, like checking stuff yeah. out. Like yeah, I'm, 
that's that's crazy anybody who wants one of those things in my opinion is nuts <laughs> yeah no that is like fucked up now i remember the um the um see i can't even remember the name of it now the xbox there was like xbox like this is about three four years ago xbox there's this thing that you set up and it like films you or, or it's like videoing you yeah the it, uh, it, it creates like a, what it's called Right, and they, they came out for Christmas, and it's like everyone's doing the dance revolution thing, so it's like videoing you, you know? And it's like, it's like everyone got that. I got that, right? We got that. We set it up. We played dance revolution for like three days after Christmas or whatever, and then like fucking forgot about it like everyone else, right? But that, that, that device is still sitting there videoing, like, you know, videoing everything that's going on in our living room, you know? And I like eventually... I just like took the thing and I took it off because it's like we're not even using it for games anymore. And it's like I no one even worries about it. But they keep trying to come up with new things like this to push it into your home. Facial recognition. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was one of the first things I ever saw that had straight up facial recognition. Yeah. Yep. You know, they say that like I because, you know, you, you know, I travel a lot for work, so I go to airports a lot. And, you know, I hadn't when we were getting tattoos, I hadn't traveled in a while but I started traveling again in the last uh, last in, in, in August. And the last time I was in, you know, at the TSA, when you're when you're checking in, it's like they 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 scan your ID. You have your phone blip, you know, with your with your, um, you know, ticket airline ticket on it. And then you pull down your mask so they can see your face. And this guy told me it was like just last week. He said, hey, soon we're not going to have to do it. You're not even going to need an ID anymore. And I said, really? That's amazing. I don't know how they're going to do that. Haha. <laughs> and then I walked on. And I realized, oh, no, that's how they're going to do that is facial recognition. They're going to have facial recognition. They're just going to like like, you know, you're just going to have your phone and it's going to be like your airline ticket. And then it's going to facially recognize you and connect that with the ticket. And that's it. And this is like all over. And this is already everywhere in China. Right. Like China's like social networking and, and surveillance stuff. They have facial recognition like everywhere in public. Everyone's face is getting recognized like constantly and 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 coordinated with like other things that are going on. So that's the next thing that's like happening in America, I think, through the TSA. That's how they roll out this shit in America. It's through like how we're gonna we're gonna control how you travel. Right. And, you know, it's our whole conversation about the old days is like, oh, we used to be able to just travel, get in the van, go play shows. Right. And we can't do that anymore. You can't just get in a van and go play shows, you know, book a bunch of shows. You know, it's like it's like, you know, everywhere uh, is different. I don't want to get too political, but I do want to say this because of what you just said is that I was telling somebody the other day, so I had a great opportunity maybe eight years ago to go to Cambodia. We went to Cambodia, Laos, and Korea on a trip uh, because some friends of mine that I was working with at the zoo were getting married. And uh, in this trip, we hired a guy to drive us uh, from Siem Reap, Cambodia, which is the city where Angkor Wat is. Uh, they actually got married by monks in Angkor Wat. It was a beautiful experience. But we drove, we hired this guy to drive us to Laos. Now, we got to the Lao border, and uh, we, there's, and speaking of border walls, there's a huge, huge 
25 foot chain link fence with razor wire all over it all the way across the the, La the laotian border there uh and then there's like this little checkpoint that you walk through and you know you show them your passport you pay money to cross uh the borderline and uh i look back and our guy is like leaving like he's driving off and i'm like uh, where's our where's our guy going? We still have a three hour drive across Laos <laughs> to get to where we're going, right? Right. And they're like, oh man, he uh, he can't cross the border. And I was like, what do you mean? And my friend, my so my friends had been there twice before, and they were like, nah, man, he can't he can't come across. We're gonna have to hire some Laotians to take us to where we're going. Okay. I was like, what are you talking about? And they were like, look, dude. And, you know, I, I just was ignorant of the fact I didn't know this. And they were like, look, man, uh, unless you're rich or you work for the government or you have some kind of special permission and, and you're Cambodian or Laotian, you're not going to leave the country. You're not crossing those borders, man. You're stuck uh. in this country forever. And that kind of blew my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this is like eight years ago. So this is pretty way pre-COVID and all this stuff, but yeah. it blew my mind because I was like, you know, several things happened on that trip to the to the point where, and you know, I was a young punk rocker, like, fuck the government, fuck the United States when I was young, but it made, you know, traveling a lot like that made me come home and be like, you know what? We do live in a great place. Like, yeah. we do have freedom here, like no other place. You know what I mean? And I think that's one thing that a lot of Americans need to keep an open mind about it's like you know a lot i think a lot of americans live in a bubble and and it's not their fault you know we're we're conditioned to to be comfortable here but i think when you start traveling outside of your box and traveling to real kind of third world countries you'll you'll come home with a different appreciation of of the united states you know uh because we do have that freedom right now and like you say it's like how how much longer will that last you know uh, because it is getting to the point right now to where they are definitely pushing things like crossing state lines is bad and, you know, yeah. COVID pass or uh, vaccine passports and all of this stuff. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they, they are, in my opinion, trying to tighten travel up for some reason. Why that is, I don't know. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, I do think that... Uh, a lot of Americans need to step outside of their box and realize what we have here is a good thing, you know? Yeah, no, we're, I agree a hundred percent. We're told we should think we are, you know? Right. No, um, I, I agree a hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent. It's like the fucking free market, like, um, um, principles of, of America are so incredible. People don't understand that that's radical. That is fucking radical. The founding of America was just incredibly radical. These guys are like, no, we're going to found a country based on like the you know freedom of the individual. And we're yep. going to make rules about it in this constitution. So radical. So reaching back to like the deepest, the deepest principles from like the the Greek and, and, you know, Roman philosophy, you know, that we'd like read before about the principles of this. And it's just an incredible thing. And it's like, now it's like, they're, they're trying to say all the people that came up with these ideas are bad, right? Let's like destroy all of them. 
once they once they destroy all of them, they're going to be able to say, oh, well, the Constitution was just written by a bunch of, you know, bunch of like racists. And they'll they'll just like throw that out, you know, and it's like you don't understand what you have here is like uh, once we get rid of that, then, well, it's just like everywhere else. It's like Laos and everything that you're like talking about. People don't understand that in so much of like Southeast Asia. Right. Well, when you brought up China, you know, I don't want to talk about China because I don't want to get your channel banned. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) my my uh, my stepmother is Chinese. Uh huh. She's not a full citizen. She's only lived in this country for maybe four years. And I'll tell you, man, that was another thing that really opened my eyes is when I met her. You know, my dad went to go live in China for a year when they met. Uh Uh, They actually have a place there and and now they're now they're residing in the u.s and because of the political atmosphere of the world unfortunately i don't think they're going to go back anytime soon but she still has a condo there her her uh daughter still lives there her family's still there uh, but you know that was another thing that kind of opened my eyes is when my dad moved to uh china he would call me you know weekly while he was living there for about a year and just tell me about you know everyday life over there and it's not what we Americans think, you know, it was kind of just mind blowing to hear of just the everyday occurrences that go on there. And I'm not saying China, the Chinese people are bad at all. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, no. Yeah. What I'm saying is that the government there has done a very fine job of brainwashing the hell out of the public, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's shocking once you realize what's really going on there. And, you know, now I have family there. So it's like, it's 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 crazy you know yeah. and that's another thing that americans just don't pay attention to you know right which is fine you know you can't expect everybody to be involved in everything all the time but i think now that we have the internet we are all globally connected so we should make it a point to try to you know study each other a little more yeah no we have the opportunity it's like the thing is like through the internet you can connect with people but I mean, everything you said about China, no, it's like, uh, you know that. It's like I, I, I have, like, Chinese family also, um, and and everything I'm hearing is that, like, no, shit's, like, changing majorly over there just within the last few years. We're now starting to hear about it in the media is starting to say, oh, it's changing over there. But, no, it's been going on. They started these changes a while back. It's like the previous administration in China was, you know, we need to make – make uh the ccp look a little bit more like european social democracy so we're gonna allow people to own their own homes and stuff like that and so there's this great expansion but that's all over now the current administration said no we're done with all of that and they're like going back they're going back the other they're going back the other direction it's like 1980 um and well that's and, the crazy thing too that i've i've noticed in the last handful of years is that if you talk to any american immigrants especially asians they know what's up yeah like they know what's up they're not yeah. they they've been through it they've lived through it uh my acupuncture doctor's 80 years old and he's a chinese refugee you know he he ran yeah. in the 60s to taiwan uh then he ended up in california and now he's here and it's funny because like I've been going to this guy for about a decade and they don't necessarily talk politics with me, but 
I never knew what their political leanings were until recently, and and uh, they don't preach about it or anything. But just through our small conversations, I've realized like, okay, you guys know what's up. You've seen it firsthand. Yeah. You've seen the persecution. The persecution. Uh, you you you're refugees. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and I think that's very interesting to your to your average American when they start talking to uh, people like that because a lot of the times they'll be shocked on their views, but it's like, well, they think this because of what they've come from, what they've experienced. You know what I mean? Right. They know what they have here. Whereas right. born and bred American has no idea what they're yeah. gifted with here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, they, 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 so look, they, they're, they, they're coming from a system where if you say the wrong thing, you might disappear in the night. Yeah. Forever. And your family might disappear in the night because of what you said. So yeah. you have to be careful what you say to people, right? Yeah. We don't understand that in the West. We have this tradition of, oh, just say whatever you want, you know? I mean, come on. Like, like just, just our conversation on this interview, which is going to be on the Internet and everything, we, like, talk so much shit about the government already, right, about the society that we came from because we have the freedom to do that, right? That's part of the founding of that's why Americanism is so radical, right? The founding of Americanism is like we you should be able to say whatever you fucking want, right? Yeah. At any time. And we were already and, locked up in China. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you come from a, a system like that where you can get locked up or just because of what you said, or your friends go get locked up, your family get locked up because of what you said, then you learn to like, you know, just like toe the party line all the time you know you have to you know so um so it's 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 you know i just it, i don't even know what to say about it because things are changing right now things are like changing right now but i just love i just want to say this i love what we've had in america right you know now in my heart i will hang on to it to the very end like all of my um interests in and, you know, spirituality and, and like what, you know, what did, what was Jesus really saying in the, in the, in the gospels and, and, uh, Egyptology and, you know, set and a pep and all this stuff. It's like, I love all that stuff. And I love the freedom of being able to like, just talk about all of it, you know, and I'll probably do that to the very end, you know, I'll do that to the very end, you know, um, and, 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 you know, that's where I'm at. And it's like, that's where I'll be to the very end. So I guess that's it. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about um, your style of tattooing. What is your style? Uh, I pretty much do American traditional tattooing. Uh, a lot of people say it doesn't necessarily look like that, but I basically taught myself how to draw by looking at Sailor Jerry, draw tattoos by looking at Sailor Jerry designs and then kind of just uh, based everything off of that. So I think it's because I take, uh, I take, what, what what's the word, uh, subject matter that wouldn't be considered a traditional tattoo and turn it into a traditional tattoo. So I think when you're average Joe sees it, they're like, that's not a traditional tattoo because it's not an eagle and an anchor or or a or a pirate right. ship or you know what I mean? Um and you know, you you know, I put a lot of Egyptian stuff and 
but I, I like it when, you know, people bring me something that's like totally not even really like a tattoo. I say tattoo, but when I say tattoo, I mean traditional tattoo. And then I turn it into that, you know, like I tell people, I'm like, man, I'll tattoo a washing machine on you and make it look like a traditional tattoo. Like I'll do, <laughs> I'll do anything, you know, I, I actually like uh, the challenge of stuff like that. It's like yeah. when people bring me something that's like not like, you know, I've done, uh, trying to think of the most recent thing I've turned into a traditional tattoo that's not really a tattoo, maybe like a Vespa or something like that, but, you know, totally turned it into like old sailor looking tattoo. It's like, that's, I like doing stuff like that. I like the challenge. Uh, and I like to be, uh, I like to do, you know, I think that's the thing too in art right now is art and music is like, I had a, a coworker of mine tell me like, and you need to stop getting frustrated. He was like, look, the your your issue is, is that you're original. And he was like, and nowadays, because of the internet, like, you know, he was like, look at Instagram, for example. He's like, if you type in traditional tattoo on Instagram, they all look the same. Everybody's copying each other. And yeah. actually, that's like what's popular. So if you're copying yeah. somebody and you're good at copying somebody, you're instantly famous. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's like, you're, you're not like that. You know, you're original. And he was like, and it and it's it almost like fucks people up when they see it because they don't know what to think about it because it doesn't look like everything else. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with music, too. It's like if you're innovative nowadays, it almost like short circuits people's brains because they're like, well, I'm not used to hearing this right. or seeing this. So is like, it why good? would you do that? Why yeah. would someone do that? Why would you be original? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've always thought that that was just a travesty because I'm like, well, isn't that the point of being an artist is to create original content, you know? But uh, I don't know. You know how it is. We live in weird times. Yeah. Uh, but I'll never stop doing what I do, you know? To me, that's the point. You know, through... through uh, your magical studies it's like that's that's the point we are creators yeah so no 100 percent, man and i love like the shit that you do like i i mean you're you're like you know that that um traditional style so traditional style of tattooing is like you know the anchor we, we said sailor jerry you know um and it's like you know thick lines it's it's like easily easily like identifiable from a distance right yeah uh, that's yeah. one of the things with it and i've noticed that like more and more it's like i understood that about you i mean when i was like um like scoping your style and stuff um it was like the content is the thing that like that gr that drew me into your style first right like like seeing your stuff right um that it was like there was like egyptian stuff and you had some alistair crowley and there was like a uh there was a there was like an aztec one there's like an aztec one you did it's all, all like like these thick black lines and stuff like that and it's like i like that you know and it's like the um the um the content like started to draw me into it but your style is like badass because it is like you know like traditional but you're bringing in like new content into it so you're making something i mean you have like made something completely original i mean your whole like you know your whole like tattooing style and everything and everything you do at at at, at, the, at, at the squid it's like you've like created this like you know this like niche for yourself you know 
And it's like everything you do is like just, you know, I really like all the stuff you do. So, you know, I, Thank you. I think you're doing something original, you know. Thank you. And that's what I try to do with my music, too. You know, like people always ask me, like, what is your music? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, you know, they say we play ska and reggae, but when you listen to it, it doesn't sound like that. You know, there's folk yeah. aspects, there's country aspects, there's blues and soul and uh, things like that. Singer songwriter aspects. A lot of people yeah. have told me, like jokingly, like you invented country reggae. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, I don't think I invented it, but I definitely, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, I've taken my influences and made it into one thing. And it's not copying. It's like you can see where my influences come from, but I still am conscious of the fact that it needs to be an original thing, you know? Yeah. That's what I tell young tattooers and musicians nowadays. I'm like, look, it's great to be able to show or or let people know your influences through your work. Just don't copy it. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like showing it is like a tip of the hat, but copying it's like spitting in somebody's face, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Right, it's like right. You don't directly copy something. You can let them know that that they've influenced you by flavoring it with that, but it's like right. don't straight up copy it. You know? Yeah, I know. I I could tell. Like when we started like talking, uh, when I came in, it's like you don't like just doing like a, oh, I just want that tattoo off of the wall. You know? It's like you're not excited about that. You want something original. You want like a challenge or something original and new to do. You know, I don't mind doing that stuff. I mean, but, you know, I've been tattooing for 25, 26 years now. And I've been custom only for. Shit. Maybe 15 years now. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, once I became custom only. It got to the point where I was like, you know, uh, especially after doing it for so many years, like I, I still have people come in that'll ask me for something uh, and I'll I'll kind of be shocked and I'll be like, did you look at my work? <laughs> you know, I had a guy come in recently uh, and he got a uh, fairly realistic uh, tree from me. And when he was asking me for it, I was like, man, uh, sounds to me like you want something, you know, fairly realistic. And, and that's not my kind of territory. Uh, I work with some guys that do hyper realistic work and I could recommend you to him. And he was like, no, nah, man, I read your bio. Uh, and to me, this is a spiritual thing. So I want you to do it. And I was like, OK, well, if you want me to do it and you've explained to me that this is a spiritual thing for you, I'm going to do my best to do it. Uh, and it was funny because I did it and, I, and, I, and it was fun. Like I went outside of my box uh, and it looked cool. But to me, it was just so kind of foreign. And it, and I felt like it looked completely different than anything I've ever done before. And I showed the guys I work with and they were like, cool, that totally looks like you did it. And I was <laughs> like, what? And they were like, yeah, I mean, it's different, but it still looks yeah. like you did it, you know? Yeah. So you don't see, so you're saying you don't see your style. I mean... I know, I know what it is, but I don't like, I have no ego about it. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like, I'm not like, that's my shit. You know, <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right. Uh, although I did invent one thing that I am like, that's my shit. 
uh, I did the I do this color dot thing, and I know there's other tattooers out there that do this color dot thing, but the way that I use it, I straight I, I have no qualms about saying this. I straight up invented it. Uh, I did it before anybody else, uh, but it's the particular way that I do it. And then once I started doing it, sure enough, like it starts happening all over the place. And and my buddy I was working with at the time was like, man, everybody's gonna rip you off, and you're never gonna get credit for doing this, but I use it as like a background effect, kind of like the old comic books where you would see old comic books where the background was like a color, but when you really looked at it, it was just a bunch of blue dots making it yeah. look like it was blue. Uh, and so that's the way that I use it. I know people use color dots all the time now, but the way that I use it in particular is is uh, what I invented. Okay. Uh, and no one, people, people do it in different ways, but no one's really started like directly ripping me off in the same way but that is that is one thing that i'm proud to say that i straight up started doing uh and, and like i say i'm not denying the fact that other people use these color dots but they use them in a different way and i never saw any of that before i started doing it wow. that's one thing i gotta state because people are like well you could have seen that and it's like no i never saw any of that i've been doing that for like at least 10 years now at okay. least okay uh, so yeah, okay. That that's one thing that that I will always back myself up about. No, that's good, man. No, that's good. Um, I I just you know now I need to go back and look at like other of your work. You know, you haven't done any dots on me, but it's like uh yeah, that's like, I know you do dots a lot. That's a part of your thing. I, I'm 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 trying to like cycle back through like what I've seen of your stuff. It's like I'm gonna go back and look at that with this new new information yeah if you yeah. look on my instagram you'll see it immediately once you start seeing stuff that has background to it it's always in yeah. the background of, of things uh the way i use it but you'll you'll see it so this is what i want to ask you is when you're doing a tattoo on someone you're giving a tattoo to someone it's an initiatory experience for them probably maybe yeah i think so yeah. i definitely think that there's a magical aspect to tattooing it's like a talisman, you know, um, especially to people that have never gotten one before. You know, a lot of people that have never gotten a tattoo before will come in and they'll have an intent. They'll have a specific uh, design. They have a reason why they're getting it, you know, like whether it's a family story or something like that. But there's an intention there, you know. Yeah. And to me, that's very uh, talismanic. And, uh, you know, I even I don't really advertise it, uh, but it's a word of mouth thing. And I have no problem talking about it here is I even do what I call talismanic tattoos to where uh, I offer a service to where uh, someone can come in. I do a full on uh, Golden Dawn style invocation of what we do before I, I have them fill out like a lot of paperwork to do this. Uh, and the paperwork is kind of extreme, but uh, I figure out what their intent is. I figure out what force should be invoked, whether it's elemental, planetary, zodiacal, sephirotic. Uh, we figure out what, which one of those specifically it should be. Then I show them the actual hierarchy in Hebrew and the sigil uh, corresponding to that name. 
Uh, I read the names to them and whatever name they vibe with the most, I will show them the Hebrew spelling of it or the sigil of it. Uh -huh. And that ends up being their tattoo. But what, what we do is we go into the room and I set it up uh, in kind of a temple formation, uh, do a whole entire legitimate uh, Golden Dawn style invocation. And then in the middle of the invocation where the intention is spoken, I actually tattoo either that Hebrew name or that sigil on them. Wow. And, and then I stop uh, and then we uh, close the whole ceremony down. Wow. So it's an actual tattoo talisman within a, a, a ceremony, you know? Wow. A, a legit invocation. Wow. And I treat it like a talisman. And I, I've only done it for a handful of people because usually it's like I want to know the person before I just do it uh, or yeah. at least sit down and interview them for a while before I do it because it's a very serious thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's one thing I like to do too, and that's definitely you know where it where it really becomes a, a talisman. But yeah, I think a lot of tattoos really are talismans, you know, whether the people know it or not, because like I say, there's an intention, and then it's created, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely think that there, uh, from tattooing for so long, I definitely think that there's energy transference happening between client and tattooer all the oh, time. Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent, absolutely. I mean, for me, like, like when I started talking to you, it's like I've been to tattoo artists before. I've been to a couple of different tattoo artists, like back in the day, and it's like I understand. No, I have to have a connection, right? So that's like part of the whole scope for me is a part of the whole scoping it out it's like do we have like a connection you know i feel comfortable with it you know i have to feel comfortable with about someone coming in oh i gotta put this like thing on you that's like forever you know it's like you have to have like a rapport you know yeah oh so. yeah i work with this one guy that uh well i always tell people it's like don't don't get tattooed by an asshole yeah, <laughs> get to know your tattooer first, because if you get tattooed from someone you don't like, you're just going to end up looking at this tattoo for the rest of your life. Yeah, like, I don't I didn't like him. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's like, why would you want to do that? And I work with several people that have tattoos like that. And they're like, yeah, the tattoo's OK, but man, that guy was a dick. You know, and it's like and every time I look at it, that's what I think of, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely recommend people make a. a a relationship with their tattooer. I mean, fortunately, now that I'm appointment only, I try to do that with all my clients. It's like you come in, we're going to hang out for like a solid hour before I tattoo you. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I and I like to do that. You know, yeah. uh, I tell a lot of people, it's like I don't think I'm a bad tattooer, but I think the reason a lot of people come back to me isn't really because of my talent. It's because I make my clients my friends. Yeah. They like they like hanging out with me. You know, and and I like it like that. You know. Yeah. They get a good tattoo, but it's like they, you know, it's it's like a weird type of therapy, you know? Yeah. No, 100%. So, do you mind if I smoke my tobacco pipe on your show? I swear to God, it's just tobacco. I would be, like, honored if you smoked your tobacco pipe here. I, I wish that I could smoke a tobacco pipe. Oh, look at him. Look at him, ladies and gentlemen. He's enjoying that tobacco so much. Oh, my God. Look at that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss it at all. I don't care. <laughs> oh, 
Yeah. I'm Aries and I had to quit smoking cigarettes and uh, everything else. Yeah. Uh, the pipe pipe tobacco has definitely helped uh, help me with all that. Good. I'm glad. No, I like pipe tobacco. I, I plan on going back to pipe tobacco around the same time that like I um, sometime in my 60s. Sometime in my 60s, I think. I'm 53 right now, so I got like seven, seven years or so before I'm, I'm just going to start smoking again. Yep. You don't look it, man. I had no idea. Oh, thank you. How old are you? 43. 43. You're a young man. You got <laughs> your whole life ahead of you. <laughs> so tell me about like. So you you mentioned like Los Carnales. Was that like that's like the early band? that you started working with? So I started playing, well, I was in, <clears throat> you know, like I was saying earlier, I played punk rock. We had this punk rock band for a while uh, with my good friend, Crystal Forge. God bless his soul. He's passed away now, but he was one of the members of my punk rock band. Uh, this band was called The Diseased. Uh, and we, we did some stuff here around Texas and Louisiana for a while, and it was fun. Um, but then when I, when I, like I was saying earlier, I stopped playing punk rock and went to ska and reggae. The first band I was in was called uh, Secret Agent 8. And you can find that stuff on Spotify and iTunes and all of that as well. And then I went to Los Carnales. Unfortunately, the Los Carnales album I'm on is not available digitally right now. It needs to be re-released. That's all because of label politics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the CD's still out there. You can still get that. Uh, but I think that they are going to re-release it digitally uh, soon because the uh, label contract has actually run up this year. Um, but yeah, that was fun. Uh, they're a huge uh, Texas ska, reggae, uh, Latin rock band, kind of a fusion band. That's uh, why I asked about it. I mean, they were like, they were like huge. It's so like... Um... Yeah, playing those shows in Mexico with them was nuts, man. I mean, it was like, not to sound fucked up, but it was like playing with the Mexican Beatles at a, at a few of those shows. It was like crazy in Mexico. Like, uh -huh. uh, And I definitely cherish those experience, experiences. I, I'm still in touch with a lot of those guys. Uh, really, the only original member right now is Felipe, the singer. Uh, he's kind of reformed the band several times. It was a completely different thing when we were in it. When I was in it, it was uh, a vocalist, stand-up bass player, a guitar player, a drummer. I played organ, and we had an accordion player. Now it's a pretty huge band. They have uh, a, uh, no accordion, but they have a full horn section. Uh, they have a keyboard player, you know, a couple guitar players, bass player, uh, electric bass now, not stand-up. So it was a different vibe when we were uh, in the band. Uh, it's kind of a different incarnation now. Still a great band, though. Uh, Felipe is one of the best front men I've ever played with. He is just... You wind that dude up, and he just doesn't stop. Uh, <laughs> and he's still like that to this day. Uh, so, yeah, if you're ever in Texas, check those guys out for sure. Because uh, they still, to this day, like I say, it's a different, different style, uh, but they still put on a great show. I remember the time that I went and saw Los Carnales, and it had to be like 2005 or six or seven or something like that. And it was when uh, Vasquez, you know, Chris Vasquez, 
was in the in the studio, you know, um, uh, Fjardison Studios where we were at. Asmodeus X was like jamming. A couple other bands were there. Chris Vasquez's band was there, and and um, I can't remember. So Vasquez wasn't playing with them, but LaForge was. LaForge was like playing with them. And LaForge used to come down to that studio all the time. And this is in, you know, for people that don't know, this is on Richmond. Uh, Richmond, like, uh, like three blocks west of uh, Montrose. That's uh, actually Rich- where Bunny recorded our second and third record for. Yeah, yeah uh, no, Bunny, yeah, Bunny, yeah. Yeah, 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 Bunny, Bunny, Bunny was coming down there too, man. And so there was like some point where like, like LaForge was coming down there all the time man and we used to like hang we used to hang tough you know you know laforge right he hung he hung tough man (laughs) yeah he was in scarnalis with us for a little while too uh he was in my punk rock band and then he was in scarnalis with us for at least shit i want to say at least three years of that time that i was in it Uh yeah he's a wild man (laughs) <laughs> yeah no he was great he was great yeah. he's like he's like one of those people like when when he left right when he like you know passed on to the other side it was like you know it didn't make any sense that hurt you know a lot of people like had their hearts hurt but it also did make sense right like he was ready to go man i mean he was like hardcore he wasn't afraid you know he wasn't afraid of anything you know and also, still, I have to say, shocked. what's that? I'm still shocked that he's he's passed away. Yeah. He was like, just like ridiculously talented. I mean, he could just play anything. He would like yeah, come down. He, he'd come down to the studio and he'd like, you know, Vasquez would like be playing and and he'd like be standing there like oh, no, I do this and he'd pick up the guitar and start like doing this so they just like fucking go back and forth and I mean he was just so incredibly talented you could just do anything you know um, yeah, he's a great guitar player yeah I definitely had some good times with him we took a we one of the best times I have with Chris is we uh, he, so his favorite band was this old punk rock band called the Toy Dolls. And their guitar player, I think, was in the Guinness Book of World Records several times for, like, fastest guitar player in the world. Uh, they were playing a show in L.A. They hardly came to the States, and when they did, it, when they did, it was, like, New York or L.A. So they were playing a show in L.A., and Chris was like, hey, and, dude, I think at the time I was maybe, I think I was 20 years old. I don't think I was 21 yet. I'm almost positive I wasn't 21 yet. Because I seem to remember I couldn't go to bars when we went to California. But we took my Honda CRX, a little two-seater CRX, three yeah. of us. <laughs> one of us rode, like, laying in the trunk hatchback thing. Me, Chris, and my buddy Cassidy took the uh, CRX straight to Hollywood. Uh, we stayed with this girl named Becca that Chris had met through touring with 30 Foot Fall. And she was actually on uh, that old uh, uh, Social Distortion Youth Brigade uh, Minor Threat movie, Another State yeah. of Mind. She, yes. was one, she was one of the punks from uh, California that they interviewed. And uh, she was old Southern California punk rock girl. We stayed at her house the first night. And it was awesome because 
she had uh, like photo album after photo album after photo album of just flyers from like the early 80s all the way through to, to I guess it was the mid 90s at the time of all of these Southern California punk rock bands. Uh, and then the next day we went and saw the Toy Dolls play. And uh, I had done a big Toy Dolls tattoo on Chris's leg. And he was like, man, we got to get backstage. Uh, their guitar player and singer, his name is Olga. And uh, Chris was like, we got to meet Olga. We got to meet Olga. I got to show him this tattoo, right? <laughs> so we get backstage and, and we're all standing there and we meet Olga and Chris shows him his tattoo. And he looks right at Chris and he goes, y'all going to regret that. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> He ended up signing uh, Chris's leg, and I was going to tattoo his autograph on Chris's leg, but by the time we got back home, we were all dirty and sweaty and ended up wiping off. That was that was some good times right there. We went to a cool record store there in L.A., and uh, this is, this is I'm showing my age here by saying this, but, uh, man, I wish I could remember the name of this record store. I want to say it was Stupid Records, but that might be wrong. Toxic? Was it Toxic Records? It was a tiny little record store. And we walked from, uh, the, I, I believe the Toy Dolls played at the Palladium or the Palace, one of the two. And we walked from that club to this record store. And I'll never forget this, man. We walked in there and they had this punk rock band. I was looking for this record from this punk rock band back in the day called The Defects. And you couldn't find it anywhere. You know, this is pre-internet. And they had the album there on vinyl. But it was 50 bucks, and I was like, man, if I buy this, I'm going to end up ruining it, like, in the car on the car ride home. Like, I don't want to do that. And the guy that was running the record store at the time, or working the record store at the time, was like, hey, what, you know, what are you looking at? And I was like, man, I've been looking for this forever, but I'm afraid I'm going to ruin it. And he was like, look, dude, uh, how much time do you have? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, look, if you give me eight bucks, I'll record this on a cassette tape for you right now. And I thought that was like the coolest fucking thing ever. So I gave him eight bucks and, you know, we had to sit there and wait for the record to finish playing because, you know, we were supposed to be at the club, but I was like, I don't care if we're late, you know, I'm going to get a copy of this record. So I thought that was really cool. I think it was stupid records. Uh, it's not there anymore, but that was, that was actually the first time I ever went to Hollywood too. So that, that had to have been like, let's see. Maybe 97. Yeah. No, that sounds good. Yeah. No, Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood's like a special fucking place, man. You know, first time I went there was like in the 90s. And then, you know, there was like this club on uh, Cherokee. Uh, what the fuck is the name of it? Off of like Hollywood Boulevard. And then there's Cherokee. And then there's... uh. There was like a big goth club there. Can't remember the name of it right now, but um, that's where like Asmodeus X. It's like we got we went back there like several times to play there. But then I was like playing with a uh, Red Flag. We like did a show there too. Um, but it's like I mean fucking Hollywood. You know when you're playing like this like punk and goddess rock and roll shit like in Hollywood, you realize that like. No one gives a fuck about you. It's so like fucking like off the beaten path. It's like all these other people in Hollywood are trying to make it, and it, they're they're trying to make it in Hollywood. 
Yeah. Right? They want to be in like feature films, right? <laughs> Everyone yeah. there is trying to do it. Every single person, like you go eat at a restaurant or whatever. Every person here is like working in this restaurant. They're trying to make it in Hollywood. Yeah. Why, why the fuck else would they be working here? They'd be working out in some suburb or something, you know, where they could live. It's like everyone around there is like trying to make it there, you yeah. know? And so when you're like just playing in some dumb band, you know, it's like, that's just like, you know, you know, the after hours thing. But even as a band, you're playing there because maybe some producer from some film or whatever is going to come in and like, you know, they're going to be bar hopping and they're going to be in your club. They're gonna, oh, this band is cool. Yeah, this is the band I need, like, you know, for like the shit, you know, for like the, the next film that I'm doing, you know? Hey, uh, I'm going to ask you this. Think, speaking of Hollywood, so have you ever heard of the band Radio Werewolf? Yes, I have. That would be the band that was like done by Nicholas Shrek and Zena Shrek, Zena uh, Zena Levey. Yes. Yeah. So you're one of the few people I, I know that would actually know that. So, oh, yeah. Weird coincidence. Uh, I guess it's been about two months. Two months ago, me and a friend of mine that's in uh, my order with me went to uh, this event uh, out by Austin, in Austin, essentially, outside of Austin. Uh, Gnosticon 4. Okay. It was the fourth uh, Gnostic gathering in the United States. Uh, long story short, we met uh, a guy there who was the drummer from Radio Werewolf. Oh my God! Really? He's, yeah, and he's very involved in uh, the Gnostic tradition. Uh, he's a Mason. He's in some uh, exclusive uh, invite-only Masonic groups. Uh, super cool dude. Uh, I don't know if I should. Well, I, I've already named him <laughs> for people that know. Uh, but yeah, super cool dude. Pipe fellow pipe smoker. Uh, I had a great time hanging out. It was a great event. That that was a really cool event out there. Uh, they did. It's run by this guy Peter Reardon, who does the uh, Gnostic Church out there in Austin. He was ordained by Bishop Stefan Heller, who essentially brought the Gnostic tradition to the United States. Basically, anybody who is ordained in any uh, succession in the United States, it all comes through Stefan Heller. So it was really cool to see him there. Uh, he was very personable. Uh, but it was cool. They did uh, mass every morning. They had lectures every day. Uh, they had bands play at night. Uh, it was a really, really uh, inviting and uh, very open uh, thing. Like, no judgment. Everybody was really cool. Uh, we definitely met people that we'll probably keep in touch with for the rest of our lives there. It was very, very nice event. That's I highly awesome. recommend if anybody's ever traveling through Austin and they're interested in any any form of Gnosticism to go check out uh, the the Gnostic Church there. It's very it's very cool scene, uh, loaded with all kinds of people. All the people that go there are in many different orders, and a lot of OTO people there, a lot of Golden Dawn people there, a lot of uh, SRC, uh, all over the board. A lot of Wiccans, like very uh -huh. very cross tradition, very cool. Wow, no, that sounds awesome. Yeah, very good community they have going on out there. That's interesting. He was the drummer. He played drums with Radio Werewolf like back in the like eighties, like in like Los Angeles when they were like doing all that. Yeah, yeah, like straight that. up. It was funny because we were talking to him and we met him because me and my buddy were standing outside smoking our tobacco pipes, and he was like, "Man, uh, 
is that a Peterson pipe? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, man, I smoked pipe too. And I left my pipe at home. And that's how we met. Mm. And uh, we started talking throughout the day. And he was like, are you guys musicians? And we were like, yeah, my buddy, my buddy Scott that I was there with is a musician too. And we were like, yeah, but we don't play so much anymore. And he's like, yeah, me too. I don't play so much anymore either. Yeah. And the days passed. Finally, we were like, you know, what, what did you do? What bands were you in? And he was like, well, I was, uh, I'm a, I, I was a studio drummer for like 20 years, but I was also in this pretty uh, controversial band that I don't like to bring up in mixed company because, you know, depending on who's around, some people get kind of pissed. And uh-huh. my buddy Scott guessed it. He was like, controversial band. You're from L.A. Have you ever heard of this band called Radio? And he was like, Radio Werewolf? Yeah, that's, that's my it. band. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, holy Everybody. shit. Uh, so, yeah, that was Everybody. that was cool. Definitely cool. Definitely. So, you know, so, so Nicholas, you know, I used to know him, right? Like I knew him and I knew Xena, like, you know, back in the day, like oh, late so night. The guy that we met is Evil Wilhelm. That was his band name. Oh, Evil Wilhelm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, Evil Wilhelm. No, he was like a major person in Radio Werewolf. Yeah, yeah no, he was like in the interviews and stuff. Yeah. Super fucking awesome, dude. So you met Evil Wilhelm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We, met, yeah. we met him as William, but yeah, yeah, after we met him, he's like, yeah, I'm Evil Wilhelm. And I was like, like what? When you started saying this story, I thought my I, I thought in my head, is it Evil Wilhelm? Yeah. Because that's like the only other person that I knew whose name is from it, other than Nicholas and Zena. Yeah. Um, so you know, you know, Nicholas and Zena like broke up like recently. And so like Nicholas is doing more. He's like, you know, you know, go figure. He's like becoming more active and he's like promoting more radio werewolf like stuff and the stuff he did in the old days which is like great i think i mean because he was like always i mean when i met him it's like we connected on this like oh no we're musicians right when you when you connect with someone on a musician level that takes it to this level of reality that is beyond just like this average occultists who are like oh no i like yeah i like you know Magic of Darian Practice is a good book, you know, and blah, blah, blah. No, it's different when you connect with someone on, like, doing music. And it's like, no, it's a band that played and released albums. You just immediately go to this level of reality and visceralness. Like, no, you just know, like, you know, you know, you did shit, right? You went out and fought battles and stuff, you know? That's what was so cool about uh, being at Gnosticon is we met William that way. And then we met uh, a guy named John and his wife, Susan. They were very, very cool. They were from the East Coast. Uh, John was also a Gnostic priest. And we met them the same way. Like, we started talking about music. And uh, John and his wife uh, were like blue. Well, John was a blues musician. He went on tour with uh, Clarence Gatemouth Brown for like years. They did a year-long tour with Eric Clapton. So we connected in that way. And even Peter, the guy, uh, so the Gnostic Church out there is run by Peter Reardon, and Peter is the same way. Like, so Peter, you would never guess this by looking at the guy, but he straight up produced the Ghetto Boys record that went like triple platinum or whatever. Oh, yeah, Uh uh-huh. And he uh, invented a, uh, I I, I think it's a compressor, uh, and he, he kind of like, that spurred a whole nother thing to where people wanted to start buying this. Like, I guess uh, producers were visiting the studio. They saw it. I don't know if I'm telling this story completely right, but his uh, invention became in high demand. Uh, and he created his own business out of it. It's called Shadow Hill Sounds or Shadow Hill Music, I believe. Uh, 
and that's who uh, William works for now. Wow. William is the manager of uh, Shadow Hill now. Oh, wow. uh, so it's crazy. It's like a small little family thing that all, kind of all comes back together. But but yeah, you're right. It's it's all through music, you know. Yeah. And I think you're totally right. When you meet people, if you're an occultist and you're a musician, and you meet people that are both, you automatically have a greater connection. It's it's pretty crazy like that. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, like especially if you're especially if you're the same age group, right? If you're Gen X, right? Especially if you're Gen X. I mean, you don't really know about these kids today, you know. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's like, no, you tried to, like, fucking accomplish things in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s that we all, you know, I know what that was like. It was hard, you know, yeah. and you had yeah. to actually go meet people and do things and, you know, bump up against reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. nowadays, everyone just does everything, like, online, you know, yeah. and it's like, I will always, like, think. You know, it's like the internet connects people. That's great. But people who just like always do things just completely online, it's like you're living in a fantasy world, you know? And yeah. so that's always the thing. And it's like if someone's just lived in a fantasy world their life, then you will know that when you speak with them. You will know that, you know? Well, it's not, it's not, it's not the same thing. It's like you can make friends online, but that friend that you have online is not going to be the same type of friend that you have in physical reality. Yeah. The bond is not there. You know, yeah. And I've met people online that I would consider friends of mine, but I've eventually met them in person. And when I meet them in person, it becomes a different thing. You know what I mean? It becomes a greater thing. Yeah. Well, we've had an incredible like exchange here. And I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to do this. Do you have any final words? For all the people out there. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, stay true to yourself. Uh, never stop looking for, uh, you know, evolution and spiritual growth. Uh, that's the best advice I could give, really, you know. No, that's great advice. So I'm going to tell everyone right now, go online. Go to Spotify and iTunes and search for Ryan Scroggins and the Trenchtown Texans. Buy that music. Listen to that music. It's fucking awesome. And if you're so lucky that you live in Houston, Texas, and you can get to the Flying Squid Tattoo Parlor in the Heights of Houston, that's where you need to go to get your next tattoo. I swear to God, that's where you need to go. <laughs> Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, Ryan. Um, take care, and we'll talk to you again soon. Good hanging. All right.